seat. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In his 2016 Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Sympathizer, Viet Thanh Nguyen describes the immigrant experience as one of occupying two time zones. The book's main character, a Vietnamese refugee living in California in the late 1970s, constantly finds their thoughts drawn back to Saigon, wondering at the hour and the time there. Anyone who has had the experience of living as an immigrant or even living in a separate time zone from a family member or a loved one that you regularly communicate with can relate. What time is it there now? What are they doing? Are they awake or asleep is now a good time to call. That experience of living split between two time zones captures something of the church's experience highlighted in the season of Advent. The church is stretched between two or even multiple time zones, living in the present as sojourners, yet informed by the past and oriented to, anticipating the future. Our gospel reading this morning, continuing on in Luke chapter 3, invites us to ask, what are they doing now? Or what were they doing then? These verses touch on what it means to wait expectantly for Jesus, for the coming of the Messiah in his first advent. And they can thus valuably inform our present, the time zone in which we reside, as we wait expectantly for Christ's second coming and the future that he brings. This morning, as we allow Luke's description of the past, waiting then, to inform our waiting now, I'd like to move through this text, again grouping our thinking around three headings. I've titled these three sections, The Coming Cataclysm, second, The Produce of Faith, and lastly, third, The Generative Fire. So first, The Coming Cataclysm. Just a few moments ago, as our worship began, as it regularly does with the ringing of the bell, and Mother Kimberly giving a call to worship. I wonder how we may have responded this morning if she had begun our time in the same way as John does here in verse 7. Ring, 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 let us pray. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Please stand for our opening song. It's, as the kids say, quite a metal way for John to open up things. It's hardcore. It's arresting and attention-grabbing. The snake imagery he uses identifies the crowd with God's enemies, as those who are opposed to God and thus subject to wrath. 
I imagine people responding like, you, you kind of told us to come out here. And John continues from there in verses 8 and 9 to use vivid kind of language to describe this cataclysm of God's wrath. Judgment. The language of the axe at the root of the trees is one his hearers would have been familiar with, along with the description of wrath, with God's settled opposition to evil and to injustice. This language relates to the day of the Lord, something that Mother Sarah talked about a few weeks ago. And John's preaching here emphasizes the nearness of the day, the nearness of judgment and wrath. Already, he says, the axe is there, ready to go. The time zone of the future is upon you, imminent. The future and present are being brought together. In the Coelho household right now, as I suspect in many of your households, the days are being counted. There's some debate, however, if the days should be counted down in relation to the 25th, to Christmas itself, or to this Friday, the last day of school before the semester is out. <laughs> Whatever the case, the future is looming large in hearts and minds. And the Advent season reminds the church that our hearts and minds are to be similarly informed by the future. Yes, we are in these weeks orienting ourselves toward Christmas, the celebration of the Incarnation. But more substantively, our orientation is toward the reality that John speaks of, the day of the Lord, judgment, during these four weeks, but at all times. The Lord is near, as we heard in Philippians 4. Let not your hands hang limp, as we read the Zephaniah exhort us. Don't be caught unaware. Don't be distracted in a stupor, in a slumber. There's this temptation, perhaps, to associate John's message here, this kind of message, with like the soapbox preacher on the street corner, right? With the sign that reads, the end is nigh. And to see it as like exclusively evangelistic. And there's something good here in this passage. The inclusion of the tax collectors, the soldiers, I think is a reminder that even those who are most ensconced in the status quo, most privileged in some way by the status quo, are often yearning for something more, yearning for truth. Yet John's challenging message is strikingly not offered to those who are outside, right? It's given to the religiously minded, to the people of God. It's given to the crowd who's come out to hear him in the wilderness. In Matthew and Mark, his message is described as for the Pharisees, for the Sadducees. They're the ones who receive this rebuke and are reminded of future judgment. There's this reminder here that judgment begins with the family of God. It is the people of God who are exhorted not to gloat in their privileged status, their lineage, but to be especially mindful that their days unfold before a living God, a holy and just God. It's the people of God who are exhorted not to live as though the present is all there is, as though what we can touch and see is most essential, most permanent. It's the people of God who are exhorted to remember that we are accountable for the gift of our lives, the gift of our resources, and that we are destined for life with that just and holy God. The season of Advent, with its emphasis that Christ will come again, invites us to remember that he comes as judge and that an account to him will be given. I recently borrowed and then returned a book to a friend and I'll be honest with you, when I first got the book and was reading it, I was positively careless when it came to the care of this book. 
It was under the bed at times. I couldn't find it for days at end. I read it while eating snacks. The cover got a little bit dog-eared even. No one is ever going to lend a book to me again, I suspect. But as the day got near where I knew I was going to return the book, I began to take more care, right? I I left it face down on the counter under a heavy book to kind of like work out the folds. I like cleaned it off and I made sure I knew where it was at all times. It seems to me that John's exhortation, the invitation of the Advent season, is that we would live with greater care, not fearfully, not paralyzed by anxiety, but with a, a sense of the nearness of Christ's return, the nearness of the future. That the distance between now and then is not so far. To live with the future life with God present in our hearts and minds. That we might take care. What this actually looks like is the focus of our second heading, the produce of faith. Throughout the passage this morning, there's a particular emphasis on doing, on action, right? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce good fruit, John charges. What should we do, the crowd, the tax collectors, the soldiers ask? Like, what do we do, the action? Even in the closing verses, Herod is described as adding to the evil he has done, right? It's about what he's doing and not doing. To read these verses and their emphasis on action, on producing, on doing, there's perhaps an inclination to hear them, in them, a kind of karmic works righteousness, where what we do might be added up, right? The fruit is put on the scales, and we have to make sure that we're sufficiently productive. It's almost like the point system in that show, The Good Place, right? Too many demerits, not enough gold stars, you end up on the wrong side. And heard in such a way, John's exhortations here, recorded by Luke, can be difficult to connect with justification by faith through grace, with the the free gift of God's forgiveness unconditionally, available to us through Jesus' death on the cross. It can be difficult to hear as good news. So thanks be to God then that what Luke records, what John proclaims is not works righteousness. What he exhorts does not contradict justification by faith. What it does perhaps challenge is our conception of faith. John here, as we've already seen, is proclaiming something to the people of God to people who were yearning for something more, desiring in some way, at some level, to be right with the Lord. What should we do, they ask. What should you do? Do the faith, John says. Live the convictions you have, you confess, of who God is, just and holy, the one who provided for you in the wilderness, the one whose image your neighbors are made. So don't extort them. Don't exploit them. Be content. Be generous. These are the fruit that a life of repentance, he suggests, produces. This is what the life of faith does. This is what allegiance to God looks like. The fruit language in verses 8 and 9 suggests this certain repetition, a certain pattern of life. That is, the life habituated to faith in God produces generosity and contentment. And a life characterized by greed, by the exploitation of others, by the neglect of the poor, reveals an absence of faith. This is why an emphasis in this season on almsgiving, on generosity, on care and justice for those who suffer economically is appropriate. Because such actions reveal faith, reveal an allegiance to God and his coming kingdom. And not just for this season, but all times. 
They are to be the habit, the practice of the church, of those who've set their trust on Jesus. Not as this mode of like earning something, but as reflective of where our security lies. With a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who's near to the poor, and who is ever and always the giver of good gifts. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was remembering this movie from the early 2000s, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. It's a middling movie. Maybe some of you will remember it, big uh, Drew Barrymore fans, perhaps. But what I remember is this scene where this husband or boyfriend returns from being unfaithful, returns to his wife or girlfriend. I can't remember if they were married or not. But he comes from this adultery. And they both know it's happened. He's like serially unfaithful. And she's not oblivious, but she is heartbroken. And the scene unfolds and they talk about it and the man goes to console her. He takes her in his arms and he says this line that I've never forgotten all these years later. He says, I love you in my own way. He repeats it a couple of times. And I've never forgotten it because it's absolute garbage. It's a complete misunderstanding of what love is, what love looks like. Love's not merely this effective interior disposition, favor towards someone or something. But love, especially in the context of romantic relationships, takes the form, the expression of concrete action, right? Actively doing some things, actively not doing some other things. And a life habitually, repetitively failing in that reflects a lack of love. At a certain point, the question must be asked, why do you constantly fail to demonstrate love? What healing, what growth, what restoration must take place that you might produce fruit in keeping with love? A similar set of questions, it seems to me, animates John's instruction, animates our response this Advent. We might ask the same questions of our own faith. And we might, in those questions, hear a similar kind of call a call to demonstrate our faith, to show our allegiance and contentment in deeds of justice and generosity, in a refusal to exploit others. Let us make manifest our love. This brings us to our final heading, the generative fire. For much of Christian history, beginning with the early church fathers, extending through the centuries to the Reformation and beyond, the passage before us this morning, Luke 3, has often been read through the lens of marriage. Not human marriage, but the great marriage of Christ and his church. In the end, we're all married to Jesus. And this reading really hinges on John's words in verse 16. Responding to the people's wondering, their questioning, if he might be the Messiah, John says, someone else is coming. One whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Interpreters through history have often taken this not simply as an image of John's subservience to Jesus, though it is certainly that, but also as this image related to the coming of a groom. To loosen one's sandal straps was an ancient Israelite custom related to Leverite marriage, marriage where one family member would take the place of a deceased other, deceased brother often. And in saying he's not the one to loosen the strap, but pointing to Jesus, John seems to be putting himself as the best man or the friend of the bridegroom, to use Paul's language, and saying, Jesus, Jesus is the one you're waiting for. He's the groom. 
That's all a little bit obscure, but the connection to marriage, to this idea of Jesus as a coming groom, is an idea expanded on in Luke's gospel and through the New Testament. And it's informative, I think, for our reading today and for our Advent. Yes, Jesus comes in judgment. There is the sure need to repent and prepare to consider our lives and live differently. But as groom, he also comes to be united with us, with his bride, the church, you and I. The one for whom we wait is not simply the judge, but is the lover of our souls. The one who gathers us to himself as he gathers wheat in the barn, we wait expectantly for one who loves us, who has shown his love for us in such a magnificent way. And marriage is, of course, union. That is what we anticipate and long for. Full union. And union is what gives us hope for today. Hope that we might produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Not because we're going to take our faith that much more seriously. Not because we will exert ourselves that much more to live lives of integrity. But because we are now, today, in union with Jesus by his Holy Spirit. We don't yet enjoy the fullness of that union. That's what we wait for. But those who are baptized, those who confess Jesus as Lord in faith, the Spirit has unified you here and now to Christ. You have been baptized in the Spirit, immersed in the heat, the warmth, the fire of his love. And what does John say about the one to whom we are unified, who baptizes? He is more powerful. He is mightier. He is stronger. The fire of his love is such that it can melt the stoniest of hearts. And from the stoniest of hearts, he who rose from the grave is able to raise up children for Abraham, the children of God. His strength is such that it can transform you and I to produce the life that glorifies him, that you and I might produce good fruit. In this busy season, I wonder if the very thought of amending your life is too much for you. Do you find your zeal for what is right and good failing? Your capacity for contentment and generosity running dangerously low? Remember today that you are spoken for, that you are now unified with Christ, claimed by Christ that you share a union with one who is mightier, stronger than the powers of hell and Satan, stronger than the patterns of sin and self-destruction that would war against you. So this Advent season, be unified to Jesus in faith at this table. Call on him today to increase your faith. Call again for the gift of his Holy Spirit, the fire, the generative fire, the fire that creates for the power to produce good fruit. Draw near to him who restores us, as Psalm 85 suggests. This past week, our family went to this art exhibit by the Texas painter Kermit Oliver. One of Oliver's most famous works wasn't at the exhibit, but it's this altarpiece at a church in Houston. It's a painting of the resurrected Christ returning in glory and judgment. It is, as the kids say, metal. There's a rooster, there's a crown of thorns, and in the background, there's this mushroom cloud of fire, judgment and wrath. But what is most notable about the painting 
is that the face of our risen Lord, Oliver has rendered as the face of his youngest son, Christian, who was executed for a crime that he committed about 10 years ago. I don't know what, if any, political statement the artist had in mind, but it seems to me that this painting captures something important to remember this Advent season and at all times. To remember that, yes, the coming of Christ means judgment and is an invitation to take care in our lives, to live lives that accord with our confession. But ultimately, those in Christ baptized in the Holy Spirit must remember that we are anticipating the return of someone we will recognize. The judge is one whom we love because he first loved us. He is someone we know and are unified in. And his return, troubling and upending though it may be, is ultimately a reunion, as we saw last week, and is, as we see this week, ultimately good news. So with the Spirit and by the Spirit, we, the bride, say to you, today and always, come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.